Today we're talking about the importance of properly diagnosing a problem in order to resolve it or to address it effectively. And to illustrate uh, this topic, I want to invite Megan Watry to come up here. And I'm not inviting her up here because she has a lot of problems that we're going to diagnose and work on. Uh, but I'm inviting her up here. You can come on up here. I'm inviting her up here because she is an occupational therapist, and she also teaches in the occupational therapy department at Concordia University. And in her role as an occupational therapist, she oftentimes works with children who have needs that need to be diagnosed in order to ascertain a certain treatment that needs to be um, applied there. And so, Megan, wondering if you could share with us a little bit this morning just about this process of when a child comes to you, what, what's the process you go through to properly diagnose what's taking place? Um, so when a child, a parent or a teacher has determined that their, their child or student is not progressing the way that they think they should, they'll write up a referral. So my first step would be to read the concerns that whoever's sending the child to me has. And then um, I would do observations and interviews and then actual tests to determine what um, skill maybe is missing or what um, developmentally the child, where the child is at to help me plan my next steps for treatment. Okay. So, I mean, the diagnosing process is really quite important. I mean, through all the observations, the tests, the conversations, and stuff like that. Yeah, the diagnosis is really the foundation for planning treatment and intervention and all the next steps. What would happen in your field if, if an occupational therapist came up with a diagnosis that, for some reason or another, was incorrect? Um, what would happen in that case? Um, they would probably still go through with intervention and um, end up wasting or spending a lot of resources and time on treatment that is ineffective. And so um, not only the wasting of time and materials, but um, the most important impact would be on the child that they would not um, probably make the progress that we would hope that all the intervention mm-hmm. would result in. Hmm. So again, the proper diagnosis is incredibly important. How gratifying is it for you as an occupational therapist when you do make a proper diagnosis and you apply the treatment and, and things are working really well? How gratifying is that for you? Um, getting to be part of the team that helps a child succeed in school or in their life is the most fulfilling um, aspect of my work. It's what keeps me, keeps me in it. I think you said the other night when we were talking about this, you said that's why you do what you do. That's, yep, that's why I do what I do. Hmm, cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, like I said, we're not going to diagnose anything with you. Um, but I think it's important just to recognize the importance of, of correctly diagnosing what's going on, whether it's in a vocation such as occupational therapy or in first service Gary Boley, who is an automotive technician. Um, he shared in first service about the importance of diagnosing accurately. It's just an incredibly important thing. Um, I want to take a moment to pray for Megan specifically, and also, <laughs> that sounds kind of strange, but I'm going to pray for you anyway, uh, just for God's blessing on your uh, work, uh, and also pray for just God to be at work in our time together as we open Scripture. Father, we thank you for your tremendous grace, and that while we were broken, sinful, hurting people, you came down into the midst of our world through Jesus in order to redeem us to help us out, Lord, to give us wholeness and new life. And we thank you 
that, that you have equipped and gifted Megan uh, to work with children who have various needs as well. And we pray that you will be working powerfully through her to bring wholeness where currently there are challenges and difficulties. Um, and Lord, we thank you that she's in a work environment that she enjoys, where um, she's able to honor you. And we pray that you will work through Megan as a conduit of your grace uh, to help others to grow closer to Christ as she interacts with them. Now, Father, as we open the scripture together, uh, we pray that you will help us to see how we too can be conduits of your grace to a broken world that is in need of rebuilding and in need of redemption. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 2. We are in a series right now that is called Rebuild. And the series is all about looking at how we take things that are broken, that are not working the way they ought to, and, and restoring a sense of wholeness and vitality to them. And we're in this book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, if you aren't familiar with it, it's a name that's kind of strange. It takes place in a time that is very different than ours is. So I want to give a recap of what we've covered so far in this series over the last couple of weeks. What we're looking at took place in around 445 B.C. So that's about 2,500 years ago. And it's taking place in a part of the world. It's in the Middle East. It's in what's called the Persian Empire back then, which was the Middle East and beyond. And, and Nehemiah was a man who had a role that's called a cupbearer for the king. King Artaxerxes was the king of the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah had a very significant role there. And Nehemiah had a Jewish background. And he got word uh, that, that Jerusalem, which had been the capital of, of Israel, the capital of the Jewish world, Jerusalem was in shambles. And he, I think he already knew that because 140 years earlier, Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And, but when, when, Isaac, when, when Nehemiah heard about the destruction there, about the struggling people of God who were there, and about the, the, how God's glory was being obscured there, his heart was broken. And so he began to pray, and he prayed for four months before God opened the door for him to make a difference there. And, and the door that opened was with the king himself, the king of the entire Persian Empire. And, and Nehemiah took a bit of a risk in how the, how the door opened and what he did, but he made a request that he could go to Jerusalem and help rebuild the city and especially rebuild the walls there. God was at work in the king's heart, and the king said yes. And the king didn't just give his approval, but he sent a lot of support along as well for this endeavor. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to read this passage, then we're going to dig in a little bit further. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. So here we see Nehemiah. He's in the city of Jerusalem. And if I were to sum up what he's doing in only two words, I would say that Nehemiah is assessing reality. 
He's trying to get a picture of what is really taking place there in Jerusalem. We see that now he has traveled a long way and he's entered Jerusalem. It's a, it's a trip of about 900 miles from the city of Susa, which was where he was, to the city of Jerusalem. 900 miles is about equivalent from where we are to New York City. And, and being in a world that was before planes, trains, and automobiles, that would have been a very arduous trip. It probably would have taken Nehemiah several months to go from Susa to Jerusalem. And you know what? We in today's world, we may complain about jet lag if we're flying to some place in a different part of the world or in a t- different time zone. That would take the worst jet lag that you can give me over what Nehemiah was experiencing. I mean, think about what it would be like to spend several months, day in, day out, riding a horse or riding a donkey um, through the wilderness, uh, through rough roads. And after Nehemiah has done that, I mean, it makes sense when it says, I went to Jerusalem and after he stayed there three days, then that's when he started to do things. But he rested for three days after he got to Jerusalem. I mean, I think he wanted to settle in. He, I mean, he needed to recuperate from that long journey. And he recognized that he was sent there on a mission from God. I mean, look back with me to this passage. He said, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he recognized that God had put something in his heart to do for the sake of Jerusalem. And so he's on a mission from God. Last week we talked about two key questions that all of us should be asking on a regular basis. The first question is, what is God saying to me? The second follow-up question is, what am I going to do about it? What's God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? And, And you look at Nehemiah, and he had a very clear sense of what God was saying to him. That he had this sense that God is telling him to go to Jerusalem and help rebuild the city and especially these walls. And he's actually living it out. He's putting it in action here. So he's sent there on a mission from God. And you know what? If I were Nehemiah, I think, and, I, and I'd been praying about this for months. I'd been all excited to get there and start the work. And I'm there and I've gotten rested up. I think my very first action would probably be to want to rally the troops, to call a town hall meeting, gather everyone together, and say, okay, these are the plans. We need to start rebuilding the wall now. I mean, why wait? He, I mean, he's been waiting for months and months and months I think he'd, if I were him, I'd want to move to action right away. But that's what, not what Nehemiah did. He, he was applying, I think, a lot of wisdom here by doing his homework um, here. I mean, it, it says that, that he went to Jerusalem. He set out at night with a few men to, to examine the city walls. But it says that he didn't tell anyone yet what God had put in his heart. Well, why didn't he tell anyone? I think there are several reasons why. One is that there is very blatant opposition to rebuilding the wall. About 15 to 17 years earlier, there had been a very violent oppression that took place in Jerusalem because the people in Jerusalem had tried to start rebuilding the city, but there were some other people who didn't like it at all. So they came with military force and forced the people to stop rebuilding the wall. And some people were still violently opposing what Nehemiah wanted to do. We saw last week, Nehemiah 2, verse 10, Nehemiah wrote that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, that, that Nehemiah was going to rebuild the walls, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. 
And I think there were probably allies of these two men who were still in Jerusalem who would have reported any suspicious activity from Nehemiah back to them. And so he wanted to kind of be under the radar for a little while while he's doing his homework. I think as well, if he simply just waltzed right into the city and began barking orders about, okay, you guys need to go over here and do the wall over here and you guys over here, how would he have been received? I think people would have just kind of rolled their eyes. It would have been like, who are you? You are just some naive outsider. I mean, you're coming up with all these dreams. You don't know us. You don't know what's gone on here before. And so they're, I mean, they could easily um, just, just pass them off and say, no, we're not doing that. There's a, a very common but, but sad scenario that takes place oftentimes when new pastors come to a church. Um, it's very common that when, when new pastors come to a church, that they see some things that they want to change. And they set about making those changes right away before they really get to know the church and get to know the people there. And what oftentimes ends up happening in that circumstance is that people get disillusioned, uh, that, that, that people get hurt, uh, that the church is damaged in some way, that there is a lack of trust. I mean, this especially takes place when you have young pastors right out of seminary who are full of passion who come into a new church. But it can also happen when you have experienced, seasoned pastors who feel like they know what works and they've experienced a lot. And so, you know what? You guys should listen to my wisdom because I've, I've been there, done that already. So let me apply it here. But that's not a healthy thing to do. You need to be more patient and, and assess the situation, build the trust before you start making significant changes. And I think that's what Nehemiah was doing here, that, that he was ready to do his homework before launching out on the action part of actually rebuilding the wall. And, and we see next that he went out at night with a few men. I mean, not many. He hadn't told many people or anyone yet who didn't already know, but I think he went out probably with some family members, perhaps with some men who traveled with him from Susa. And he went out at night to avoid detection from people, and he's going out to investigate the wall, to diagnose the severity of the problem that lies before them. Now, let me give you a map of Jerusalem, because if you were like me, it's easy when you're reading stuff in the Bible to just kind of be like, okay, I'm reading this, but how's this all fit together? It doesn't quite make sense, and it really helps to visualize it, doesn't it? So for me, it's helpful to see this map of what Jerusalem looked like at that time. And so that, that, that map up there is kind of the borders of Jerusalem. And we read here that by night, I went out through the valley gate. You see the valley gate there, that, that yellow line shows the, the path that Nehemiah took. So he went out of the city through the valley gate, uh, which is on the west side of the city. And he is going out to inspect the walls. And it says, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. So after going out on the west side through the valley gate, he went south to the dung gate. And you may think, what in the world is dung gate? Surely they could have come up with a better name than that. Um, it could also be translated the refuse gate, the garbage gate. Um, what this was was literally where the people of Jerusalem threw out their garbage. You see, there was a big valley down there on the southern edge of Jerusalem. And they, out through that gate, they would throw their garbage. They would go down the valley. It was essentially their landfill. And occasionally they would set every, all the garbage down there on fire to burn it. And so he went down to the dung gate. What he's doing is examining what, what the reality is out there with those walls that he's seeking to rebuild. He says, after that, I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. 
So he went on around that southern, uh, that southeastern edge of the city. He came, he was going towards what's known as the fountain gate. But he says, you know what? There wasn't enough room for my mount to get through. Now, we hear this word mount and we're like, what's a mount? Um, you have a mount on a wall of a deer. I mean, what's going on here? Um, a mount essentially is talking about an animal he's riding on. Um, could have been a horse, but I think it's probably more likely a mule or a donkey because they're very sure-footed. And those animals are also very quiet, which would be of the essence when he's trying to do the secret reconnaissance mission at night. But it says that there wasn't enough room for them to get through. Now let me explain what's taking place here. Archaeologists have found down there in that southeastern part of the city of Jerusalem, as they dig down through the layers of soil that have built up through the years, they have found this major rubble field down there on that southeastern part. It looks like an avalanche of stone. They were cut stones, but an avalanche of stone took place down, uh, down the hill into the valley there. And what took place uh, was that back then, for some reason or another, the people of Jerusalem wanted to build their part of their city on this very steep hill over there that was above this valley. But to build on that, on that hill... They had to create these terraces, which are like steps. And they would build their buildings and their houses on those steps. They had the wall down below that. And that wall essentially served as a retaining wall. Now, if you know what a retaining wall is, it holds back all the soil and everything that's back behind it. But what happens if you remove a retaining wall? Everything comes crashing down. So when the Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the wall, the retaining wall was gone, and the terraces and the buildings that were above it all came crashing down in a literal big avalanche of stone and debris. And archaeologists in the last hundred years, as they've excavated that part of Jerusalem, have found this massive rubble field that probably dates back from the time of Nehemiah. And so what probably happened is is as they're exploring the walls here, they come across that massive avalanche of stone and they can't get through. And so he says, so then, because I couldn't get through, I went up the valley by night examining the wall. So what he did was, he was no longer hugging the wall just right up close to it. Instead, he kind of went out a little bit further around and went up the valley where he could still see the wall, but he couldn't see it at that close of proximity. So he went up a little bit further and then it said, that finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And so we, we retraced the steps, went back to where he was, and we may have the question of, okay, why didn't he go on to the northern part of the city as well? I mean, he's trying to inspect the walls. Why didn't he go up there? Well, I think the best explanation for that is that in that northern part of the city, that was the more populated, more busy part of the city because that's where the temple was. That's where majority of the houses were. And so it would be much easier for him just during the day, during the busyness of the, the streets up there, just to casually kind of look out there and, and inspect the wall without drawing that much attention to himself. But it's a little bit harder in the southern part of the city where there aren't as many people, there's not as much activity, and it's a little bit more obvious when you have someone out there kind of looking at that wall. So what Nehemiah is doing here is inspecting the wall, doing his homework so that he is not caught off guard when it comes time to actually begin to rebuild this wall. He wants to go into it with eyes wide open. Now, I want to draw a principle out of this um, that applies not just to Nehemiah, but really applies to all of us regardless of our phase of life. And then principle is this, that lasting success requires an accurate grasp of reality. Lasting success in any realm of life requires an accurate grasp 
of reality. I mean, that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's trying to grasp reality. And when we're talking about reality, we're talking about what is really true, the facts of the matter. Um, it's not what we hope is true, or it's not what we think might be true, but it's really digging deep and trying to understand what is really going on here. Some people have called this confronting the brutal facts. And that in order to really understand what's going on, we have to understand the reality. We have to confront the brutal facts of what's taking place. I have a number of friends, both currently and, I mean, in the recent past, who have bought fixer-upper type of houses. And if you know anything about people who have a fixer-upper house, or if you've had one yourself, you probably know that when you get it, you know there's going to be a little bit of work that needs to be done. What ends up happening as you start on it is that a little work becomes more and more and more project piles upon project. You find things you weren't expecting, and then you kind of get discouraged. Or, I mean, it takes a whole lot more work than you expected. Now, when we look at Jerusalem, it was, it was essentially the ultimate, huge, enormous fixer-upper. I mean, imagine what it would be like to rebuild a wall around an entire city. And that wall was about three to five feet thick. It was probably 15 to 20 feet high. And it was broken down all around the city, and they have to rebuild the whole thing. I mean, that is a massive task to undertake I mean, it's that ultimate fixer-upper. And so for Nehemiah, it was paramount that he understands the severity of what's going on there so that he, as he accurately diagnoses reality, is able to address it effectively as he's rallying people towards this cause. So that's what he's doing. Um, And I think for us, it's important that in all parts of our life that we also are being quite passionate and quite devoted to accurately grasping reality rather than sticking our head in the sand and pretending like things aren't that hard if they are. I think of marriage, for instance, on the personal level. Marriage is hard. I mean, as devoted as two people are to each other, what ends up happening in marriage is you bring two people together who have lived somewhat independent lives for a significant number of years. They come together. They're sinful, selfish human beings. And they, they devote themselves to one another till death do them part. And then the realities of life hit. And it's really hard to take two selfish, sinful people and weld them together and say that now you need to operate as one. Now, not just roommates, but you need to actually function as one unit. That's really hard to do because you get tensions that come in. You get stressors both from inside the household and even from outside the household that come in. You get poor communication that, you know, happens sometimes. Uh, You get uh, baggage from the past that enters in. You get hurts from the present that even you sometimes cause to each other. And so marriage is hard. And you take these small issues that happen in marriage, and then they sometimes grow into bigger issues if they aren't addressed. And what needs to happen when there are struggles in marriage is that the husband and the wife are devoted to actually seeking, okay, what is the real issue here? We're going to accurately diagnose reality because if you don't do that, it's going to be really hard to to really regain health in that marriage. Unfortunately, there are many people in today's society who are not willing to go through that process of diagnosing reality so they can get their way back out of it. It's probably because it's humbling to deal with the reality of challenges. It, It can be painful to deal with that reality. It's not any fun to change. But you have to accurately diagnose reality in order to, to move back towards a path of health and success. It's the same thing in finances. I mean, if you are struggling with finances, 
my suggestion for you, uh, one of the suggestions, is figure out where you are. Diagnose reality. I mean, get, get all your income together, get your, all your expenses together, your bills and your debts, and just figure out, okay, where am I now? And what is it, what's the cause that got me here in the first place into this mess? Because if you don't understand your current reality and what got you here, it's going to be really hard for you to accurately figure out, okay, how are you going to get out of here? I think also, say, if you're a student and your grades are struggling in school, it's important to diagnose, okay, why are my grades struggling? Or if you're a parent working with your kids, the same thing. Because your diagnosis of why a child is struggling with grades is going to make a big difference in what the appropriate course of action is. I mean, think about it. If, you, um, if you're a student and um, you are devoting a lot more time to your friends and to your video games than you are to homework, well, that could be a cause of lower grades and that's going to yield one course of action. If, on the other hand, uh, the content of the course is just incredibly difficult and you can't seem to wrap your mind around it, that's going to yield a different course of action that probably involves working with the teacher or tutors or stuff like that. If, if instead, um, the, the issues there are that you cannot see the board very well and therefore you aren't, you're struggling, then you're probably going to need glasses, a different course of action again. If the struggles are, are traced back to stresses in the home life of the child that are preventing the child from really concentrating well in the schoolwork, well, that's a different diagnosis, a different course of action that's needed. If, if the student is very self-conscious and doesn't want to be perceived as a nerd by their peers, that could be another reason for struggling grades, that they're unconsciously or consciously making the decision just not to apply themselves as much as so people don't think they're a nerd. So there are all these different possibilities. Uh, they have the same symptom of, of, of dropping grades, but the diagnosis makes a huge difference in what the appropriate course of action is. There's a, there's a book out there, a great classic business book that's called Good to Great. It's by Jim Collins. And in that book, Jim Collins says this. He says that you absolutely cannot make a series of good decisions without first confronting the brutal facts. It's true in business, it's true in our personal lives, it's true in our walk with God, it's true in our church. You absolutely cannot make a series of good decisions, especially if you're in a, in a place of some degree of unhealthiness or of brokenness. You can't make a series of good decisions to get you out of it without first confronting the brutal facts and assessing reality in an accurate way. That's what we have to do. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. He was ascertaining, what are the facts here of this broken wall? What's going to be needed to repair it? He wasn't going to be caught off guard. He wasn't going to be naive about it. And that's what we must do as well. And so a question for us to consider is this. In our own lives, our personal lives, our marriages, our finances, our, our studies, our um, integrity and our character and our, our walk with God, are there realities that we have been sticking our head in the sand about and trying to avoid that we really need to address? Are there realities that we really need to, to diagnose and get our minds around? Odds are good we all have this to some degree or another. Things that we have kind of been avoiding or ignoring or maybe aren't even aware of that we just need to take a tour of our lives as Nehemiah was doing around the city and just to figure out, okay, what is going on here? So that we can then create a plan with God's help to make a series of good decisions that's going to help get us back in the right direction. Now again, this can be very humbling. It can be painful. 
I mean, for that reason, we need to certainly remember the grace of God. I mean, God, in, in what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he, he balances the bad news of our sin with the good news of the fact that he sent a Savior. I mean, he gives us grace. Uh, we have to remember from 2 Corinthians 12 that God's grace is always sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in weakness. When we're assessing reality, we're going to come across weaknesses and sins. But remember, God's grace is always sufficient for us. And this is certainly where having trusted brothers and sisters in Christ is also incredibly helpful. One, to hold us accountable, uh, to help point out blind spots and help hold us to a course of action that we've chosen. But also, loving, trusting brothers and sisters in Christ are very helpful in the process because they can give us support and encouragement and not let us get too discouraged if, if we're dealing with really hard things. So are there things, realities that we need to assess and to address in our lives? Now, I want to turn our attention for a few minutes to this topic of church as well uh, in terms of, of having lasting success in the life of a church that, that is coming to grips with reality. I think in church, it's important that we uh, talk about what is the definition of success. I mean, with Nehemiah, the definition of success is he's trying to rebuild the city of God and the people of God. That definition of success was pretty easy. Rebuild the walls, which will help rebuild the people there. In church, though, success is a bit harder to define. I mean, on paper, I think churches oftentimes get it right. You look at mission statements that churches have and things on their website and on their official literature. They talk about, we want to make disciples and we want to glorify God and we want to uh, share Christ with the world. Those are, I think those are right on in terms of success criteria, goals for churches to have. But unfortunately, when it comes to actually living that out, oftentimes those aren't our actual success criteria that are going through our mind. Instead, we're focused on how many people are here, how much money is coming in, what's the quality of our programs and our church services. As pastors, um, I mean, among pastors, you oftentimes hear them talking about the three Bs as the success criteria that we naturally default to. The three Bs are our bodies and bucks and buildings. That if you have a lot of people there and you have a lot of money coming in and you have nice buildings, then you must be a success. But my question with those things, even though I think most people acknowledge those aren't the ultimate success criteria, even still, where then does making disciples fit into those things? It's not there. Our success criteria needs to contain a significant portion of disciple-making. And so here in this church, over the last few years, we've really been wrestling with this idea of what does it look like to make disciples, intentionally so? And, and what is a disciple? I mean, is a disciple something, simply someone who is active in church? Is a growing disciple someone who's just learning more head knowledge about Jesus? Well, we came up with a diagram that we call the up-in-out triangle. And this is a description of the characteristics of a growing follower of Christ. The growing follower of Christ has three key relationships. You have your up relationship with God. You have your in relationship within the body of Christ of building each other up. And you have your out relationship with the surrounding world of, of sharing the gospel with that surrounding world. And you have the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, right in the middle. And we define this as, biblically speaking, we believe this is a great picture of the characteristics of a growing follower of Christ. And so it's really helpful to have that as our North Star. And for me, these last few weeks have actually been very encouraging as I've been thinking about making disciples. Um, the reason it's been encouraging is because I've been working on our 2013 annual report uh, as a church. Um, 
you may be thinking, okay, annual report, that sounds incredibly dry and boring and mundane, and I have no idea how anyone could be encouraged by an annual report. If, if that's what you're thinking, you don't know our annual reports here at this church. Uh, we revamped them a couple years ago because they were dry and boring and mundane, and no one wanted to read all 45 pages of them. This is nine pages long, and the reason I am so encouraged by it is because it contains a lot of <clears throat> literal testimonies of God's transforming work in people's lives. So as I've been working on this annual report in the last few weeks, I've just been reflecting on, on just the beauty of, of God's work in our midst to transform lives in even this last year. It's been so incredibly encouraging to think, you know what? God really is at work here to make disciples. After our church service today, you're going to get a copy of the annual report as well. And I strongly encourage you to read it. I mean, just if you doubt that it's not a normal annual report, just open it up and you'll see it's not a normal annual report. Um, but it's very encouraging. If you only read one thing from Freedoms all year long, I encourage you to read this. Because it's a great picture of, of who we are, what God's doing here, and what we strive to see as a church. But we want to make disciples, and I'm encouraged that we are seeing a lot of fruit in that direction. But we don't want to be satisfied with good enough. And I think it's easy in a church or in other settings just to look and think, okay, things are going pretty well on the surface level. And we miss the fact that, you know what, underneath the surface there may still be things that we have to address in terms of our health and our fruitfulness. Let me share with you a, a story that's not church-related. Um, I'm going to start out with a trivia question. That points to the importance of diving below the surface to diagnose reality. Um, what do you think is the most valuable company in the world, financially speaking? And this is not a rhetorical question. Um, I'm looking for possible answers. What do you think is the most valuable company in the world? Google. Apple, Google, Microsoft. Microsoft. You guys must have been listening into First Service because those are the exact same answers there. Um, <clears throat> the most valuable company in the world, according to several different studies, in terms of assets and, and profitability and stuff like that, is Apple Computers. Um, by far uh, the most, most valuable company in the world. Apple Computers, I mean, the most valuable company in the world, they recently named a new head of their retail division that's selling computers both in the Apple stores and online around the world. Her name is Angela Arantz. Um, but what they did in this process of naming a new head for their retail sales is recognize, you know what, not everything is healthy here in our retail world. Not everything is healthy. On the surface level, it certainly would look healthy. Um, I mean, they are making tons of money. Um, if you, in retail space, one of the ways you can gauge success is by looking at the number of dollars you make per square foot of retail space in a year. Apple, Apple stores, I mean, you may have been in an Apple store and know what they are. Apple stores are, are head and shoulders above everyone else. Apple stores average $6,000 per square foot in sales per year. $6,000 per square foot. The next closest retail store around the world is half that, $3,000 per square foot. And after that, they drop off very quickly. Apple stores are seen as the industry standard for excellence in stores and in customer service. So you would think, and, and they're the ones everyone's trying to emulate, so you'd think, okay, they have a lot going for them. They're doing really well. But what Apple has done is not be satisfied with where they currently are, but they're digging deeper, trying to diagnose deeper realities, assess what's really going on. They find, you know what? We have weaknesses. Not everything is perfect here. 
For instance, there are some tense dynamics between their online stores and their brick-and-mortar Apple stores. They find that in the emerging markets of China and of South America and other places, their influence is very, very limited. They find that, that employee morale in the Apple stores has been going down in the recent years. Profitability, even though they make more money because they're building more stores, profitability actually is not going up in the last few years. So they've diagnosed these realities here. And, and in response to that, because they have an accurate view of reality, they brought in this woman, Angela Ahrens, who, whose track record shows that she is excellent in helping companies turn around in these specific types of areas. They, they assess reality, and they've come up with a course of action based on their reality. And churches need to do the same thing, to not be satisfied with good enough, but to keep asking, okay, even in our individual ministry programs and activities and events, are there ways that we can grow in fruitfulness? Are there things that aren't as fully fruitful and as fully healthy as they ought to be in terms of making disciples? And you know what? If we realize we can grow in these areas, to be humble enough to make those changes. Now you may be thinking, okay, this is awfully pessimistic. It's not very much fun to look at problems and harsh realities. You're right. On one hand, it's not very fun. But I don't think it's an issue of optimism or pessimism. Because, because looking at the reality is not the opposite of optimism. If you want to build optimism without a grasp of reality, that is simply blind faith. It's simply hoping that things are going to get better even without looking at reality. What it does, when you look at the reality of what's going on, you actually give yourself a foundation to build on to have real hope, to apply real solutions, and apply specific prayer and apply hope from God to the reality, that if you don't understand the reality, you're not going to be able to have that true, deep-founded optimism that comes from hope in God to work in that situation. So, so what we need to do is pe- people like Nehemiah, like Apple Computers, who are brave enough to face reality, to constantly be diagnosing what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our businesses, what's going on in our church. I mean, what are the things we can celebrate, but what are the things that we need to grow in? as we assess those things, have the courage to submit them to God and to see him work in those things. If we try to bury our head in the sand, we're going to prevent the work of God in those areas. But if, we, if we're humble enough to bring them to the surface, submit them to God, we're going to see him work in powerful ways to re- build a new reality that is not as broken as the old one, but one that is based on wholeness and vitality as God is at work there. My prayer is that we will be people like that. We don't run away from reality, but submit it to God and see him work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, when you saw the broken reality of this world, did not hide. You didn't stick your head in the sand and say, oh, that's too bad. But you came to this earth, entered the mess of this world. You came face to face with the reality of our sin. You paid the penalty for that sin to redeem us. And I pray that you will help us to have the courage and the humility and the faith to do that same type of thing with our brokenness in our world, in our church, in our personal lives, Lord. Pray that we will be more effective in making disciples as a church and in being disciples as individuals. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.